Corinthians 12, verse 31. And yet I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship, that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonour others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always preserves. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. There, where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Let me not, to the marriage of true minds, admit impediments. Love is not love which alters when it alteration finds or bends with the remover to remove. Oh, no. It is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken. It is the star to every wandering bark whose worth's unknown, although his height be taken. Love's no, not time's fool. Though rosy lips and cheeks within his bending sickle's compass come, love alters not with his brief hours and weeks, but bears it out even to the edge of doom. If this be error, and upon me proved, I never writ, nor no man ever loved. That's Billy Shakespeare, his absolute best, isn't it? 116th sonnet is maybe, if you're an English literature student, you can come and tell me afterwards if I'm wrong, but it's, it's maybe one of the most beautiful poems ever written about love. It plays second fiddle to 1 Corinthians 13. This is God's song about true love. I've no way of measuring this, but I imagine if you think about all of the weddings where this passage has been read or spoken at, it has probably been used in millions of weddings. It's actually not a wedding text. <laughs> not directly, at least. It's a song that speaks right into everything that's going on in now, I appreciate it's been a few months since we've been in this book, but hopefully enough of the, the big idea of what's going on in Corinth is still reasonably fresh in your mind. Church in Corinth is in a mess. Corinthian believers are arguing about their favorite leaders. They are twisting the gospel. 
to try and make it look more respectable and philosophically impressive. They are celebrating sin, suing one another, committing idolatry in worship. And Paul has written into all of that mess, such that by the time we get into chapter 12, he starts focusing on a new big issue that needs to be addressed. What should we make of spiritual gifts? It's the central question, chapters 12, 13, and 14. And one of the biggest problems Paul has to deal with is that the way that the church thought about spiritual gifts was completely wrong. They obsessed over them. They, they ranked them in importance and fought, longed for having what they considered to be the greatest of the gifts. They looked down on Christians who had what they considered to be the lesser gifts. In fact, they would even go so far as to say to other Christians in the church, I don't need you. The way they thought about gifts had become entirely self-serving. And Paul began to correct some of that horrendously sinful misunderstanding in chapter 12. Matthew helped us see that every Christian is given spiritual gifts, which means that all of us together need the gifts that each of us individually are given. We are united together through faith in one Savior whose one Spirit binds us together and forms us into one body. And Paul's got lots more to say about spiritual gifts. We're going to get into more of that in chapter 14. But before he gets there, God inspired Paul to write this beautiful song about love. Chapter 13 is not an interruption between 12 and 14. It's a heart exam. It's an examination of how we think and feel and act as Christians, and especially in the way we use our gifts together as Christians. Paul's challenging the the Corinthians with questions like this. What do you value most about Christian life and community? What marks out a faithful church? What do you look for in a mature Christian? And the Corinthians would have a whole list of answers to all of those questions. But how do you answer them? How do you think about your spiritual gifts? What is it that you look up to in in leading, in modeling, in mature Christians that you could imitate? How do you think about the local church? And what is it that gets you most excited about the local church? Our temptation is the same temptation the Corinthians had. To look for the things that the world thinks are impressive, but that's not what God values. And Paul is going to show us the most excellent way. We're just going to look at the first half of the chapter uh, this evening, and we're going to begin in verses 1 to 3 with what is really a, a shocking corrective. Paul says, exercising gifts without love gains us nothing. If you use the gifts that God has given you in a way that does not love and build up the church family, they are nothing to you. 
speaking in, in tongues or different languages. That was one of the gifts that the Corinthians obsessed over. To them, if you had that gift, you were spiritual greatness. You could take pride in all of that. And Paul says, if you exercise that great gift without love, you have ruined it. You are not a blessing to others. You are not bringing honor to God. It is no good to you. Even, verse 1, even if you could speak in the most exalted languages imaginable, it would gain you nothing. Now, I don't think, in verse 1, Paul is actually talking about the language of the angels. I think if you look into verse 2, we're seeing in these opening few verses that he's using hyperbole. He's doing what preachers, speakers do in order to gain the kind of overall effect of what they're trying to say. So in verse 2, he imagines someone who can fathom all mysteries and who has all knowledge and who has all faith. I don't know why in the NIV, but we're missing that extra all that is repeated. It's not a faith, it's all faith again. All faith that can move mountains. No, no, one, no one has all of those gifts. No one could possibly have all of that understanding. And that's exactly the point that Paul's making. He, he's, he's playing on their obsession with all of these gifts and taking them to an absolute extreme and saying, even if you could speak in the most exalted language imaginable, if you do not use that gift in a way that will love and bless and bind your church family together, you're like a resounding cymbal or a clanging gong. Now, some of you um, have had children in your home who have learned to play the drums. And your ears may still be ringing from the very first time that they got their sticks and just went wild on some of the cymbals. There's no rhythm to it. It doesn't fit with anything. It's just offensive noise. But it's possible that Paul's actually pointing at something else here as well. The uh, pagan gods, of, of whom there were so many in Corinth, there were two, Dionysus and Cybele, who were worshipped by people marching around Corinth, clanging their gongs and cymbals. So Paul might even be going so far as to say, if you try to worship without sincerely loving others and exercising your gift in such a way that is going to show that love towards them, your worship is no better than the pagan worship that you have been saved from. That's how essential love is. It's so important, verse 2, that prophecy understanding, knowledge, and great faith, not the saving faith that is given to all believers, but the extra great gift of faith that is given to some, they all mean nothing if they're exercised without love. You could even, verse 3, make some staggering gifts of generosity. You could give away absolutely everything you have, literally everything. You could even, and this verse is a little bit tricky to translate, you could give over your body to hardship. Paul might be saying there that you could sell yourself into slavery so that you could give the proceeds to other people. 
Or he might be saying that you give your body even as a willing martyr, perhaps even to be burnt to death. A bit tricky to know exactly from the manuscripts which one he has in mind here, but whichever it is, it, you look at that and you think, what an enormous sacrifice this person was willing to make to give away literally everything, to willingly give up even their body to the flames. Paul says, if you do that, look at verse 3, so that you may boast, it doesn't please the Lord. And that's what's driving so much of this so-called worship in Corinth. They They don't just want to use their gifts. They want to use their gifts in such a way that everybody sees them using their gifts. They want to draw attention to themselves. They couldn't care less about blessing and loving everybody else. And because their hearts are so misguided, Paul says, God isn't honored and you gain nothing. See how stark this is. It's not your gifts will be slightly less effective. You might not see quite so much blessing if. It's nothing. If you exercise your gifts without that deep-seated, controlling love that determines how you speak, how you exercise your gifts, what you do and how you do it, then it's of no benefit. Problem's not in the gifts. (laughs) Let's be very clear about that. The gifts come from God, who is the giver of every good and perfect gift. The problem's our sinful hearts and the way we manipulate the gifts in order to big ourselves up. Now, in our church right here, right now, we're not consumed, I don't think, with tongues and prophecy and and mysteries. But that doesn't mean that this struggle isn't a problem for us. We can wrestle with exactly the same temptations. And sometimes we wrestle with the temptation personally. And sometimes we wrestle with the temptation when we think about other people. Let's start with ourselves. If you go back to chapter 12 and verse 7, Matthew reminded us a few months ago that every single person, every single Christian, I should say, forgive me, every single Christian is given at least one gift, one manifestation of the Spirit is how Paul describes it. So, so this question is relevant for every single one of you who is a Christian here this evening. How do you use your gift? What is it in your heart that you long to achieve as you are using your gift? Some of you are gifted teachers or leaders or helpers or givers. We've thought about some of the breadth of the spiritual gifts that are given Do you, in your heart, not in the way that perhaps others might see, do you use those gifts to bless and to serve others in a way that is almost always, if not always, sacrificial to yourself? Or do you use them to look good? Or have others tell you you look good? or even to try and impress God with what you're doing. Sometimes the struggle that we're talking about here, it's a personal one, but other times it can be a struggle in the way that we look at others. Because just like in Corinth, 
So often our sinful hearts, they look for what we see in the world is valued. They look for the outwardly impressive, the big and the showier, the kind of things that often draw our hearts. And it's, it's very tempting, even within Christian circles, to be drawn towards those things. So perhaps in the Christians that you look up to and you want to learn from and emulate in all of the good ways that the Bible talks about us emulating others as they emulate Christ, perhaps sometimes you get drawn towards the people who have the big showy gifts up front or the people who have an encyclopedic Bible knowledge or the people who have gifts in the pulpit or in the pew that leave you just in awe of their faith. Now, none of those gifts are wrong in themselves. But they're worthless if the person that we're looking up to doesn't exercise them out of love. Which brings us to a really important question. What is love? How are we to love each other so that we use our gifts in the way that God intends? And in our language and culture, love means anything and everything. We use the same word to describe, well, what have we done this week? We've used the same word to describe how much we love our children and how much we love freezing cold showers on a hot summer's day. So, what is love? Well, it would be easy for us, perhaps, to fill the word with our own definitions, but Paul and the early Christians were much more careful than that. Under God, this word, love, is very specific. The Greeks have always had a whole range of words for love. Had words for family love and for friendship love and for sexual love. But the Christians took up the word agape for this love. Agape love is a word that doesn't really appear widely before you get to the New Testament. And then with the beginning of Christianity, it explodes Agape love is focused on other people. It's lived out at great personal cost. It's the love of God seen in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the love that transcends any description you could possibly have. Even Billy Shakespeare could possibly have. One writer describes agape love as a love for the utterly unworthy proceeding from a God who is love. It's a love lavished on others without a thought of whether they're worthy to receive it or not. It proceeds from the nature of the lover rather than from any merit in the beloved. Get a sense for what's going on with this agape love? Well, that's the love Paul describes in verses 4 to 7. And the second and final thing we're going to think about this evening is that loving like Christ changes everything. Loving like Christ changes everything. We're going to look at all of the detail of what's in verses 4 to 7 in a minute. What I want you to see first of all is all of these describing words are verbs. Agape love is an active love. It's a love that is involved in the world. It's not just active, it's, it's present and continuous, meaning what's described here isn't something that you just do once in the past, and then you can feel that you've ticked the box, we've loved that person, we can move on. This is the love that is done again and again and again, which is perhaps why Paul begins this list in describing love as being patient, because 
<laughs> That's not who we are by our nature, is it? We're prone to impatience. We want to do things our way, in our timetable, according to our plan. But agape love is patient. And not just when it's easy to wait. Everybody finds it easy to be patient when it's easy to wait. I've not been to Wimbledon, but I imagine being in the beautiful surroundings of Wimbledon on a beautiful summer's day in a queue waiting for strawberries and cream is a relatively easy thing to wait for. That's not the patience that's described here. This is a patience exercised in the face of suffering. This is being patient when it hurts. Love is kind. When the Bible speaks about that kind of kindness, it's not the kindness that you give to somebody who's been kind to you. You know, you share somebody about how they've done something well, and then they share something about how you've done something well too. That the kindness that's described here is the way that you show goodness and kindness to someone who's hurt you. And, and as I looked at the rest of these verses during the course of this week, the most helpful person I came across, who really helped me dig into the detail here, was Karl Barth. I don't often find myself reading Karl Barth, but Karl Barth was really, really helpful in these verses. And what he does is he breaks down verses 4 to 6 into three little sections. And they're going to be helpful hooks for us to work through this list. He looks at the end of verse 4, beginning of verse 5, and describes love and the darkness in ourselves. Then he looks, end of verse 5, into verse 6, and he shows us love and the darkness in others. And then in verse 7, shows us our experience of love and the apparent darkness in God. That's how I want us to work through these last few verses together. Firstly, love and the darkness in ourselves. Remember, this is not just a random list describing love. This is a description of what the Corinthians are wrestling with and how they need to hear about the true love of God. So what do we know about some of the things going on with Corinth? Well, they, they struggle with jealousy, pride, and selfishness. They resent other people's blessings and gifts. They basically want to fight against everybody's everything. <laughs> and all of those struggles are coming from this sinful remnant in our heart. But Christian love doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It is not proud. It doesn't dishonor others. And it is not self-seeking. We should think for a minute about how different we are called to live as Christians because of who we are. A Christian is someone who has received love and mercy and forgiveness we absolutely never deserved and couldn't possibly have earned. So, how can we envy or boast or be proud? All of us here who are part of our church family, those of you joining us online, part of our church family here, we have been saved into a local church that is part of the universal church of people who have also been saved by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So how then can we dishonor others? Your translation might say something like being rude or inappropriate. How can we look for ways to be offensive with one another. The very, the very fact that we are Christians means it is entirely opposite to our new nature to seek to be self 
seeking. Just think about that for a minute. The very fact that you're a Christian means you've received a love from a God who chose not to think only of himself, but to reach into a world and rescue broken people who were not pursuing him. That's what it means to be a Christian. How then can we be self-seeking? Christian, agape love, you see, it gives itself, but doesn't assert itself. And we need to see what that looks like when we face other people's struggles too. That's what Paul goes on to, end of verse 5 into verse 6. That's love and the darkness in others. And if you think about this section, we've thought about how true love is a challenge because of who we still are and how, what we're wrestling with. But it's also a challenge because of who we are living with. And Paul highlights three ways that we can easily allow the sins, the failures of other Christians to make us respond in a loveless way. So agape love, he says, it isn't easily angered. It's not because when you become a Christian, everybody else stops being annoying. (laughs) Or they never do anything that you find difficult. That's not the case at all. In fact, in some ways, when you think about it, if you were living in the world and you weren't Christians there's probably very little reason for the vast majority of you to spend time with one another. Some of you are related to one another. Some of you have got connections in work. Basically, the vast majority of you wouldn't otherwise spend time together. So what does it mean to become a church family? It means you start committing to one another and doing life together loads more than you otherwise would, which means you're forced to do so much more together and realize, I'm actually really rather annoying. And then you're experiencing all of that within the Christian family, thinking, this is harder than it should have been. It's harder than it would have been if I wasn't a Christian. Actually, being a Christian makes it even harder. Paul says, through the Holy Spirit, that love is not easily angered, even though I am very annoying. And I mean that not just in jest. Same is true in the way that we respond when people genuinely sin against us. The church is full of sinful people who've been saved by grace, who one day will be fully glorified. But until then, every single one of us is going to be wrestling with sin until we die or the Lord Jesus returns. So, how are we going to deal with that? Tell you what the Corinthians did. They sued each other. They distanced themselves from one another. They asserted their rights over others. Paul says there is a more excellent way because love keeps no record of wrongs. How do you do that? Is that just like the Christian equivalent of being a doormat that suffers from amnesia? You just let everybody ride over you and completely forget everything that happens? No, it's a choice. You keep no records of wrongs because you don't begin by looking at the other person. You start by looking at your own heart. And even and only for the moment, thinking about the horizontal relationships that we have with one another, we think first of the countless ways that we have failed other people, hurt other people, 
sinned against other people. And of their grace and mercy towards us. Again, just keeping it to the horizontal at this stage. And we are reminded by choosing to think about all of our sinful failings first. That we will not keep records of wrongs. Verse 6. This love chooses not to delight in other people's evil. But rejoice with the truth. As you chart the journey of the New Testament. There is always, always a, a a moral foundation to Christian love. Um, you think about how our world describes love today. Lo- love is a personal, subjective thing. That's not the Bible's description of love at all. Love, says Paul, rejoices with the truth. Love isn't a question of personal, subjective, emotional feelings. Love is tied to God's given truth. That's love and the darkness in others. And then verse 7, Bart describes this as love and the apparent darkness in God. Now, hear what he has to say here. It's not anything heretical. Think about the experience of seeing what we are to do in loving each other and seeing the darkness in ourselves. Seeing the darkness in other people and the struggle that we have in living with one another. For any human being... You get to a point of being weighed down by all of that sin and darkness and just thinking, why, Lord? Why do I have to keep on suffering? Why why do I have to keep bending towards and trying to love people who I find difficult and they find me difficult? Perhaps you're even at the point of thinking tonight, you know, it would be a whole lot easier in my life if I could just stop trying to love and just let it rip. I'm just going to... Stop holding it all in, and I'm just going to let off a volley, because it's going to be so much easier. Paul says, love always protects. If you trace how Paul uses that word through all of his writings, he uses it to mean bears, as in bears up. So here's Paul. He, He knows that this description of love that he's portraying is going to bring us to our wit's end because we are full of struggle ourselves. We're living in a struggle with others. And Paul says love protects to the point of holding on to that relationship. It bears up all of that struggle so that it won't destroy it. It always trusts, which doesn't mean Christians are gullible. It means Christians don't Always think the worst. Every single one of us is a finite person. There is a limit to what you can know about a person or a situation. What does that mean? It means there will always be voids about which you don't know. Your sinful heart will instinctively fill that void with distrust, and suspicion. This Christian love calls us to fill the void with trust. Christian love always hopes, not because Christians are naive optimists. Agape love always hopes because we refuse to take failure as final. Why? Because this world isn't the end. 
we know that there is an eternal life to come. And so there is a hope that makes us, that is built upon our conviction that there is better yet to come, which is why also Christian love always perseveres. That's an active word. It's the kind of word that pictures someone in the midst of all of this darkness that we're thinking about, that the darkness of my own sin, the darkness of the effects of sin from others, that feeling that in the brokenness of the world that we live in, there's, there's, there's darkness from God's relation to me, which is our experience of the sinful world. It's not a reflection of him. Into all of that, this perseverance says, I know God will have the victory. And so, I will persevere. I read a lovely line this week. Belief and hope for the Christian don't exist in a vacuum. They're anchored to the God of the promises. Belief and hope for the Christian don't exist in a vacuum. They're anchored to the God of the promise. I want to unpack that as we close. You look at those last four verses that we have just read together. From love is patient all the way down to love always perseveres. Hands up who thinks they can love like that. It's an overwhelming list, isn't it? It's a list that leaves you thinking, who could ever love like this? <laughs> I, I can't, the pulpit is not a soapbox or a confessional. I'm not going to tell you about all of my struggles with this list, but I don't think I can do any one of these things fully. I can't love without getting easily angered. I, I struggle not to remember what has taken place in the past. I struggle to always trust. And that's Paul's point. His whole point to the Corinthians and to us today is that we would see how impossible it is to keep this list. You think about what Paul's just been doing, okay? First three verses, he's been helping them think about gifts. And he's told them, even if you have the greatest of spiritual gifts, if you exercise them without loving one another, they are nothing to you. Now, it would be, it would be pointless for him then to say, but there's another way that you can earn approval for yourself, approval from God, approval from others. And it's the grace of love. So don't worry too much about the gifts. Just go for love and you can earn everything that way. The whole point in this list is to leave you absolutely convinced that this love is beyond you. What we need is one other person who can love like this. We need Jesus. Now you go home and you reread that list and put Jesus' name in every reference to love. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus doesn't envy or boast and is not proud. Jesus doesn't dishonor anyone. Jesus is not self-seeking or easily angered. Is any one of you praising God that this is true of Jesus yet? Jesus doesn't delight in evil but rejoices in truth. Jesus, who ever lives and is seated at the right hand of the Father, looks at us today 
through faith, and he always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. What do these verses tell us? They tell us, firstly, that the great and glorious news of the gospel is that God showers this agape love on sinful people like us who do not deserve it. This is describing the love of the Savior who has come to the loveless and the unlovely like us. But it doesn't just stop there, as wonderful as that is. The second wonderful part of the gospel is that his great love is living and active within every single one of his people through his spirit. To change you. To empower you to live like him. And next week, we're going to see how God's love will do that work all the way into eternity. Tonight, I want us to see how our great need as Christians is not to long for the greater gifts. It is to long to be nearer and nearer to the heart of the only person who is love. The closer we are to the Lord Jesus Christ, the more he will transform our lives from the inside out. That's how we will then be able to use all of the gifts that he gives us in a way that will bless one another and will bring glory to God. But we don't get there unless we draw closer to him. And that should be our prayer for this week.